join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, we'll catch you up on all the happenings during the Victoria Day weekend, the shocking storms that killed 10 Ontarians, how much politics did the parties play with that tragedy, and COVID continues to bedevil two of the party leaders. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2022, day 21 of the campaign, so let's get to it. JMM, I hope you had a good holiday weekend and didn't aim any fireworks at police officers. Oh my <laughs> goodness, how bloody crazy is that? What the hell were they thinking? I know, I know, they weren't thinking. They weren't. Anyway, on to the hustings. The big story over the weekend was the freak storm that blasted through parts of the province. Ten people died. It was particularly vicious in eastern Ontario and in parts of York Region. The Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, immediately cancelled his plans to visit Niagara Region and went to eastern Ontario instead. Electricity was down through much of Ottawa, you know, uh, lots of people in distress and, and Del Duca, you know, charging like, where's the premier? Uh, he did an event with Amanda Simard, who is the candidate in Glengarry Prescott Russell. Uh, people will remember her. Uh, she was elected as a progressive conservative member four years ago, uh, left the PC caucus over the uh, government's early policies uh, regarding Francophone affairs, later on moved into the Liberal caucus and is now seeking re-election as a liberal. Now, let me say a word about this event, because uh, I, I did watch the event on the Zoom feed, and it was a strong event for Del Duca. Uh, he, he's been looking for an opportunity in order to pummel the premier on something, and this was certainly tailor-made, uh, his, uh, you know, where's the premier, um, with one exception, and that is he said he was suspending his word, suspending his campaign in order to visit and attend to the people of Eastern Ontario, and that is all well and good, but I thought the use of the word suspending there was a bit precious. I mean, come <laughs> yes. on. We're, you know, a week and change to go in an election campaign. He was campaigning. He did a press conference in the area. He took questions from media. He criticized the premier. I mean, he really wasn't suspending his campaign. He was campaigning. Uh, right. Precious is a good word. Uh, you know, it was, it was clearly, uh, you know, too cute by half. Uh, he was not suspending his campaign. Uh, having said that, uh, he did, I think, demonstrate that, you know, he and the Liberal Party campaign, they could uh, pivot when necessary, change their schedule, uh, be where they needed to be to, uh, you know, shine a spotlight on uh, needs in, you know, what was a, a, a an actual urgent situation in which, you know, sometimes just bringing the TV cameras around to an event like this uh, can help things. I'm not sure that, you know, it's not like Del Duca was, you know, patching up any holes in people's roofs or, or you know, mending any windows. Uh, but a, a, a useful indicator of uh, the, the, the skill of the campaign. Uh, absolutely. And he did uh, speak to some local people on the ground, small businesses to find out what they needed and so on and so forth. And, and you know, in politics, most of the time you get marks for showing up. Uh, we should say Doug Ford on day one that this happened uh, did not do any events. But on day two, he tried to also convey the image of someone not playing politics with a disaster. He showed up in York Region to survey some of the damage. 
And, you know, it is always uh, tough for leaders to know what to do here. Uh, if you uh, show up, uh, you know, as Del Duca did, uh, and as Ford later did, you know, uh, you will get knocked for uh, politicizing a disaster. If you don't show up, you look like you are uh, either exploiting or ignoring the situation, depending on uh, the day of the week. You know, uh, when uh, Jean Chrétien was prime minister, there were some really uh, severe floods in Manitoba. And uh, Jean Chrétien being prime minister, you know, he showed up for a, a photo op. Uh, I believe it was, is recorded putting sandbags into place to help, uh, you know, stem the flo- the floods. Uh, you know, and, and got excoriated for doing the photo op and then uh, leaving town. You know, he was he was there to convey the impression that he was there to help, but uh, you know. They did not need the prime minister to personally fill sandbags, uh, including his, of course, enormous entourage and, you know, press uh, following and attenders and and all that. Uh, It just wasn't a terribly helpful uh, addition. Well, as strange as this sounds, I remember another example that was so eerily similar to the one that people experienced just this past weekend. It's 1985. It's just after the May 2nd election. Premier Frank Miller of the Tories and Dennis Timbrell, one of his senior cabinet ministers, go to uh, the communities in and around Barrie, Ontario, where a tornado had touched down and they killed, I I think a dozen people died in that incident, John Michael. And again, here's the premier and a senior minister surveying the damage. There are cameras around to record it. That is part of the job. But at this point, of course, Miller had only won a minority government, and the Liberals and New Democrats were on the verge of joining forces to kick him out. So was he politicizing the tornado to show the public, look at us, we're doing our jobs, please don't throw us out? Well, yeah, a little bit. He he sure was. So it's hard to know where to draw the line on these things, that's for sure. Now, let's check in on what else the leaders were up to this weekend, starting with the NDP. They did two events focusing on nursing shortages. So Andrew Horvath was uh, doing two virtual events uh, on the weekend, one in Niagara region, one in uh, Scarborough. Uh, these were themed about uh, filling empty nursing jobs in those regions by uh, hiring new nurses. Dave Augustine, the new Democrat candidate for Niagara West, introduced Horvath at the Niagara event. Uh, he was the mayor of Pelham and a Niagara regional councillor for 12 years. Uh, Horvath, that we all know, uh, contracted COVID-19 last week, uh, but, you know, was, was looking good, sounded, uh, you know, recovering. Horvath's campaign actually announced that she will be returning to uh, in-person appearances on Wednesday. Um, there were other nurses uh, who attended the event, but it, it was still an interesting choice of riding to focus on. The, the riding of Niagara West before the House was dissolved was represented by uh, Sam Osterhoff. He uh, won that seat with 53% of the vote uh, in 2018. So uh, not exactly clear to me why the NDP would uh, focus on this riding, given that it will be a a very hard riding for them to win, even if things go really well for them on June 2nd. Right. Let me say a word as well about Andrea Horvath, because, you know, I got to tell you, she was a real trooper to try to get through this announcement. She she looked good. She sounded upbeat. um, But you know, she's fighting COVID and she was feeling lousy the whole time. And you and I've talked in the past, John Michael, about the difficulties of virtually campaigning versus actually being there. And the virtual campaigns, you know, they just don't match up. I mean, there were moments during this campaign announcement when the sound and the video didn't sync up. So that looked a little bizarre. And then uh, Dave Augustine, God bless him, but for whatever reason, they had him standing right in front of Horvath uh, when when he, when he was introducing her and 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 she was talking and she was doing her thing. 
So uh, you couldn't see her. She was obscured. Probably 80% of her was obscured because uh, Augustine was standing right in front of her. And I guess nobody told her, told him, can you just move a half a step to your left so that we can see the leader? Um, You may think I'm being picky about this. I'm, I'm really not. Uh, I've I've been on TV for a little bit, and I can tell you that when your tie is crooked or when your hair isn't properly combed or when your papers are messy on the desk, people notice, and they're distracted by that, and it takes away from your presentation and your message. And people can't concentrate on what you're trying to say when they are so distracted by things like your candidate standing in front of your leader so you can't see the leader. Now, Horvath did perform well particularly when you consider that she's fighting COVID, but she did, late in the announcement, have a coughing fit that she just could not stop. And here's what some of that sounded like. And I'm saying to nurses and to Ontarians, we can fix it, we will fix it. (coughs) Pardon me. Now, shortly after that, the NDP just simply pulled the plug on the on the whole uh, Zoom feed. Usually they send it back to uh, Ms. Horvath at the end to give her a chance to wrap things up, but she clearly couldn't do it. She was just coughing so much, and you did have to have a lot of sympathy uh, for her, but uh, the damn COVID just got to her. Now, here's the crazy thing. I just got finished talking to Erin Kelly from Advanced Symbolics, and she said that after that event, Horvath's numbers went up. Her seat count went up. And what it means is there may actually be a bit of a sympathy vote for her out there who see her making an effort to campaign in spite of the fact that she's dealing with all this COVID. So uh, now we're nine days to go and who knows if that's going to hold up. But anyway, I did find that interesting that her numbers actually went up despite the fact that she was off the campaign trail. Now, the NDP also made another announcement about democratic reform. Why don't you tell us about that one? Uh, The NDP are proposing to implement a a mixed-member proportional system, uh, the kind that was recommended by a constituency assembly uh, about 15 years ago. We held a a referendum about this in Ontario in 2007, and uh, it uh, it did not pass, (laughs) as you might realize, uh, you know, that we still have the same electoral system that we had at uh, Confederation. Um, You know, Andrew Horvath made the point that she thinks that uh, the Liberals, uh, Stephen Del Duca, has proposed to implement uh, a ranked ballot system. Uh, Horvath accused the Liberals of uh, basically choosing the system that would most benefit them. Uh, the NDP would uh, opt for uh, proportional representation, which is what sort of mixed member proportional is, um, because the party has, has long favored proportional representation and believes it's a, a, a fairer uh, way to, to allocate representatives. Well, I do remember covering that 2007 Constituent Assembly thing, and yes, they did recommend mixed-member proportional, and yes, it can be a better and fairer system than first-past-the-post, but it has one massive disadvantage, and that is no one knows what the hell it is. (laughs) MMP is really confusing, and it's difficult to uh, explain which is why, of course, I'm going to ask you, you nerd, to explain it. Because <laughs> even though I probably could, I probably can't do it as well as you. So you go for it. Right. I mean, this is the the problem that a lot of uh, electoral reform uh, programs have is that sometimes the acronyms are uh, really off-putting. I think Andrew Coyne once described um, single transferable vote or STV sounding like a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> um, <laughs> So in 2007, uh, the uh, then Liberal government of Dalton McGuinty, uh, they had committed in their uh, 2003 platform to bring in a uh, citizens assembly to analyze uh, electoral reform. That assembly proposed mixed member proportional uh, 
as a, a way of changing the system we have now. In uh, an MMP system, you still have locally elected members in ridings the way we do now, but then the legislature would also have basically like about a third of its members would be what you would call top-up members, or anywhere between like a quarter to a third. Um, and those top-up members would uh, be allocated to the smaller parties who are usually disadvantaged in our first-past-the-post system to better reflect their proportional standing. So, you know, if you had a system in which the liberals got, let's say, 40% of the vote, but 60% of the seats, smaller parties who had been disadvantaged would get some additional seats to make up for that deficit. You know, as I mentioned, the NDP have historically supported proportional representation, and this kind of system has the benefit of keeping some link between local representation and the people who represent us at Queen's Park. They're there are other proportional representation systems where you just go off of a national or a, in this case, you would do like a provincial list um, and, and just allocate them uh, with no regard to local representation. Uh, the liberals, uh, as we mentioned, support ranked balloting instead. Uh, it, it's not really a proportional system at all, but it has the benefit of ensuring that in any riding, the winner would be able to say that they won with 50% plus one of the votes. So, you know, it's not just a choice of like the technical finicky details of electoral reform. It's also a choice about, you know, what values you think should be prioritized in the voting system. Uh, and of course, uh, yes, uh, these systems do tend to benefit different types of political parties. You see, folks, that's why I asked him to explain it, because he did a way better job than I ever could have. <laughs> so well done. Now, let's continue our look at what took place this past weekend. Uh, the Liberals did an announcement about carjacking, and you know, of course, why that was in the news so much lately. Uh, Mitchell Marner, the uh, terrific player for the Toronto Maple Leafs, had his car carjacked um, at gunpoint while he was going out to a movie one night in the West End. Uh, so uh, obviously, this has been very top of mind for a lot of people ever since then. And the opportunity, of course, to bash the PCs for being, quote-unquote, too cozy with the gun lobby was something Stephen Del Duca just could not resist. <laughs> yes, and this is, of course, the second time the Liberal campaign has tried to, um, let's say, pluck something out of the headlines and uh, spin a campaign announcement out of it. Uh, the first was the uh, ban on handguns that they proposed. You know, uh, that policy got... I would say very skeptical treatment from reporters, uh, primarily because the real power to do anything about handguns does not have anything to do with the provincial government at all. This is the federal criminal power at work. Uh, the uh, federal government has proposed some handgun policies that interact a bit with municipalities, but nobody here in any party really is proposing to, to dramatically use provincial powers because they can't. Let's take a look at what the PC leader, Doug Ford, did over the weekend. He visited, interestingly enough, Perry Sound, Muskoka on Sunday. Didn't make an announcement, no clips from the event, no media availability, and a very interesting choice of writing to attend, John Michael. Right. It, you know, we talked about Perry Sound Muskoka last week. Uh, one of the safe seats for the progressive conservatives 
in normal times. <laughs> um, but it could mean that this is, in fact, not so safe this time around. You know, why would the PC leader be going there uh, unless the Greens were nipping at his heels? Uh, there is no Liberal candidate on the ballot. Uh, the NDP did reasonably well in the last election, but I, I don't think anybody actually expects them to uh, win the riding. Uh, so maybe Ford is worried about holding on to that seat for his party, uh, or maybe he's doing a little bit of trolling and spending uh, a, a bit of time in a safe seat, uh, you know, flying the, the, the PC party flag in uh, one of its uh, safe seats. Well, let's admit, Perry Sound Muskoka is a pretty beautiful place to spend some time on a holiday weekend, so there is that. And his cottage is there. And his cottage is there. <laughs> so now you were just up there as well. Does Matt Richter, the green candidate, have much of a ground game there? You know, Richter's team claimed that they had knocked on, I believe, 30,000 doors in the riding, which is actually a pretty substantial chunk of the 80,000 voters on the rolls there. I mean, some of uh, the the volunteers with his campaign were joking about running out of doors to knock on, which, you know, is one of those good problems to have if you're running a campaign. Uh, the day I followed them around was a little bit chaotic, and I, I didn't actually see that many people answer their doors. Uh, we were also uh, door knocking around dinner time, so maybe some people just didn't want to answer the door. Um you know, but I will say, you know, it's not my first time tailing a canvas. And the one thing I didn't see, and, and you do see this, uh, or at least I have seen it, particularly in Toronto, uh, and given the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so, I, I saw it primarily when I was tailing liberal campaigns. Um, you, you know, you do sometimes see a really um, nasty, angry response to people knocking on doors. Not often, but I don't think you knock on that many doors without seeing it at least once. Um, and I didn't see that at all uh, in terms of uh, Matt Richter's campaign. Uh, now, as I said, a lot of people just didn't open, answer their doors at all. Um, but I, I was surprised that, you know, in general, uh, the response was very positive. Even, you know, people who, who said nothing about whether they were going to vote for him, at least he wasn't getting obscenity shouted at him. <laughs> now, one of the issues that the opposition parties have tried to make a bigger issue in this campaign is the issue of Tory candidates showing up. When candidates debate local issues, it engages people in politics. It becomes real. It drives engagement in the process. By dodging these debates, Doug Ford, Doug Downey, and the other conservatives are taking for granted the trust that people put in our institutions in democracy. You know, the most basic test of leadership is showing up, being accountable, listening to the public, answering questions, and even uncomfortable ones. That's Jeff Lehman. He is the mayor of Barrie. He is running for the Liberals in the Barrie-Springwater Oromedante riding against the Attorney General Doug Downey. And apparently they've had three all-candidates debates in the riding. Downey has shown up to one of them, skip two. And this has been an issue for the opposition parties, either the PC leader or his candidates, uh, not doing uh, all candidates debates, not showing up for interviews on television, uh, not participating in uh, all candidate discussions. Uh, Lehman put out a challenge basically to the conservatives. Come on, we have debates, show up. This has been uh, really an issue uh, for the entire province. Uh, progressive conservative candidates just really not showing up for these these types of events. Uh, they have not sometimes shown up on uh, TV for interviews. PC leader Doug Ford has not appeared uh, on the agenda. You wrote something for our website about how he's the first premier in our history to not show up. Um, 
you know, you have a column actually uh, today, Steve, focusing on the race in University Rosedale. Uh, you went door to door with the New Democrats, uh, the Liberals, and the Green candidate. Uh, the Tory candidate initially asked you to come along, uh, and then uh, I believe when you tried to nail down uh, details, he emailed back saying, uh, sorry, too busy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Obviously, head office got to him and told him, you're a 20-something rookie candidate and you will not be hanging out with reporters. I'm very sorry. Uh, Jeff Lehman, back to Barry for a moment. Lehman says people in the riding are showing up to attend these debates, to learn more about the candidates and their platforms. There's also an audience on television because many of these debates are televised by a local cable company, for example. But the PCs are running a classic frontrunners campaign where they try to keep their heads down and participate as little as possible in the democratic process. And, you know, if you want to be cynical about these things, given that they've been leading in the polls for the last, I don't know, four or five months, uh, you know, you'd have to say that this strategy so far is paying off for them. Right. And in fairness to the progressive conservatives, uh, Doug Ford is still doing, uh, if not daily events, certainly frequent events. We haven't had a, a big, long gap like we had earlier in the campaign where there was just radio silence from the campaign for a few days there. Uh, he does take questions, although it is still our not preferred format of just one question, just one follow up. And, and I can't help but add, I mean, if the liberals actually thought that uh that this was going to uh, uh, benefit the Tories to actually show up to these debates, they would not be begging them to show up, right? Like, like it, this is, I think, one of those cases where, you know, there's a principle here, and I respect the principle, and as a reporter, I want people to show up and defend their views. <laughs> but again, to be slightly cynical, I, I, I don't think that this is going to make or break the, the campaign for the Tories. Although, again, having just spoken with Erin Kelly, she says there is considerable angst on social media about this. And yes, most of it is among those people who would never vote for Ford anyway. But she did say there is a chunk of the undecided who are not pleased about the fact uh, that uh, Tory candidates are not showing up. And, and that is showing up uh, in social media feeds. And and Erin went so far as to say it it is a bit of an issue today and could continue to be a bigger issue if the Tories uh, don't do something about this. Having said that, um, you know, go back in time, even past elections where the party in power had a strong lead during the writ period, their leaders still did one-on-one -on -one interviews, their candidates still allowed reporters to tag along on canvases to see what issues came up at the door, whether it was liberals in power, Tories in power, New Democrats in power. This is the way things have always been done, but not this time. Okay, we've, uh, we'll get off that soapbox now and do another quick word on Stephen Del Duca, who did five events in Northern Ontario over the weekend in hopes of picking up some seats there. Uh, he did a photo op in Sudbury, uh, of course, did the obligatory visit to the Big Nickel, but also spoke about uh, the opioid crisis in uh, northeastern Ontario. Uh, and then he went to Thunder Bay. He met with uh, Indigenous leaders there and uh, talked about uh, liberal support for small businesses. I, I should add that this is very similar in some ways to the tour that uh, Andrea Horvath was hoping to do last week before uh, COVID-19 got in her way. So, um, you know, you can see that other parties are treating the North as, uh, you know, a place where there's some real competition possible. Let's spare a word for the Greens here. Mike Schreiner announcing that the Green Party will work with urban municipalities so that people have access to nature, parks, or trails within a 10-minute walk from their home by the year 2030. The Green Party is also touting the uh, endorsement from David Suzuki for uh, 
Shriner himself, for Diane Sachs, and for uh, Matt Richter, uh, the uh, aforementioned candidate in Perry Sound, Muskoka. Uh, Richter and Shriner were uh, both endorsed by the OSSTF last week, uh, and Shriner has also been endorsed by local uh, ETFO representatives. OSSTF and ETFO are both uh, major uh, education unions in Ontario. Uh, Sachs has received endorsements from uh, numerous uh, prominent voices uh, across the political spectrum. Uh, including uh, former conservative politician Hugh Siegel, uh, former uh, Toronto mayor Barbara Hall, uh, liberal Tom Axworthy, uh, and a three-time New Democrat candidate Julian Heller. A fairly ecumenical series of uh, endorsements there. Now let's move on to today and check in on where the leaders were at. This election is our shot. It's our shot to finally fix seniors' care in Ontario. There's Andrea Horvath campaigning still virtually, discussing long-term care. Uh, For what it's worth, Horvath says she is now testing negative, feeling much better, but she had sniffles today, decided to do one last day in isolation, but she'll be back out on the hustings tomorrow. Uh, She announced the NDP would scrap a law passed by the PCs that critics say makes it more difficult for people to sue long-term care homes. Uh, The bill provides liability protection who make a, quote, honest effort to follow public health guidelines and the laws. Uh, The New Democrat leader was joined by family members who lost loved ones at Orchard Villa. And JMM, you should remind people what Orchard Villa was all about. Orchard Villa was the long-term care home that had uh, some of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks in the province. Uh, 70 people died in the 230-bed home uh, during the first wave of COVID-19 back in early 2020. Uh, The home was the subject of the um, really shocking report from the Canadian forces that was eventually made public and, and, you know, probably led directly to the establishment of the government's uh, independent inquiry into long-term care. That report, uh, you know, really documented some uh, awful, awful conditions. Uh, You know, people who suffered not just directly from COVID-19, but from neglect, uh, as reported in things like uh, cockroaches and flies, uh, the smell of rotten food in the hallways, uh, residents uh, suffering from dehydration, uh, really, you know, nightmare fuel stuff. (laughs) The PC leader, Doug Ford, was in Brampton today at a plant building, the Mississauga LRT. And I want to thank the team here at Alstom's. These are all-stars right behind me. At the -the state-of-the-art facility for hosting us today. Ford mentioning that he wanted to spend $86.6 billion over the next 10 years to build and expand roads, highways, and public transit across Ontario. And, of course, there was the obligatory backdrop of lots of men in hard hats looking like they were just champing at the bit to get out there and build something. You know, we've talked about this uh, repeatedly in the podcast, so we're, I guess we're going to repeat it just a little bit more. But, uh, you know, it, it really is one of the uh, themes of the campaign, uh, you know, the the Tories uh, really proposing a, a truly enormous amount of money uh, on uh, construction. Uh, the Liberals, uh, basically, with the exception of the 413 highway, have, have co-signed essentially the whole bill of sale. While the, the PC party is, you know, trying to make this about, you know, who's for building more and who, who wants to oppose building, I, I mean, just to sort of 
repeat myself here a little bit. I mean, the liberals really have said that they intend to fund all of the same transit projects, right? They, it's, they, I, I don't think there's as violent a disagreement here as uh, the, the PCs uh, want to say there is. Um, you know, some of the more interesting disagreement is over things like, you know, how you, how you get this stuff built between, uh, you know, environmental approvals and those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, very much one of the key issues of the campaign. The PC leader was asked today about the storm that you and I talked about earlier, John Michael. He was specifically asked about climate change and his party's plans to invest more in climate-resilient infrastructure and whether they should be doing more. Here's part of his response. You have to build roads uh, and highways to get people out of the gridlock. One of the worst examples uh, of pollution, go stand on the bridge of the 401 and watch bumper-to-bumper traffic. That's why we're building roads and bridges and and highways to get people home quicker, that, uh, you know, they they don't have to sit in gridlock and smell someone else's fumes. I I guess the explanation that uh, building more highways gets cars moving more quickly and is thus um, less polluting uh, it will not, I think, surprise our listeners to say that that's not, strictly speaking, accurate. <laughs> um, when cars move more quickly, they consume more gasoline and uh, uh, will uh, pollute more uh, than, uh, yes, an idling car is not a, an effective use of gasoline, but a car moving at 120 kilometers an hour on a highway is actually polluting more. Um, that said, you know, the the question was about you know climate resiliency and this is one of those topics that really i mean you know we we ought to be talking about a lot more because the government owns a lot of stuff <laughs> and you know whether that's hospitals or roads or schools and all of that stuff gets battered by big storms like the one we had in the weekend and uh, uh you know whether that that stuff is being built to uh survive what we once thought of as one in a hundred year storms and now it's more like one every 10 year storms uh, that's a big question and i you know talk to the insurance people sometime uh, i know we've had them on the agenda Maybe we'll have them on the podcast at some point. Uh, But like insurers in Canada are always like ringing the alarm about how we are not taking climate resiliency seriously enough. The average cost of a home in Ontario under Doug Ford has climbed by half a million dollars. Let's move to the capital city where Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, was campaigning today. And John Michael, I did read your column on the fact that you think time is running out for him to make his mark. Why don't you go into that? Right. So the liberal leader was in uh, my own riding of Beaches East York uh, to talk about the liberal proposal to uh, implement a use it or lose it uh, tax for you know what he alleges are, are land hoarders. Um, but, you know, we're looking at the calendar and there's like nine days left to the election. And so I and a, another reporter asked him, you know, what happens if he doesn't win on June 2nd? Because... Uh, there's a whole universe of possibilities right now, but you know, if he doesn't form government, whether that's as a leader of a minority coalition or whatever, I mean, that's maybe one possibility, but there's also some really bad possibilities for the liberals at the moment. And depending on which website you look at, they might still be the third party in the legislature when the dust settles on June 2nd. Uh, so, you know, I had to ask Del Duca, like, if you don't form at least the official opposition, uh, if you don't carry your seat, I mean, are you still going to be the liberal leader for much longer? Uh, You'll be uh, shocked to discover that uh, Stephen Del Duca did not suddenly announce that he was going to resign if he didn't (laughs) win the, uh, the election.
I am not shocked to hear that. And uh, do you want to know how he's doing in that riding right now? Uh, I would very much like to know. <laughs> well, again, having just talked to Aaron Kelly from Advanced Symbolics, Inc. Well, first of all, do you want to hear about your writing or do you want to hear about his writing first? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm selfish. Tell me about Beaches East York first. <laughs> okay, Beaches East York is one of the closest NDP liberal fights in the whole province. At the moment, the NDP candidate leads the liberal candidate by 0.2%. Wow. That according to Advanced Symbolics. That's Beaches East York, which was NDP in the previous House, but it's always close. Uh, I remember when Kathleen Wynne won her majority government in 2014, Arthur Potts took that seat for the Liberals, but only by 400 votes. So it's always close. Uh, or I should say, lately it's been close. Uh, let's go up to Vaughn Woodbridge, which is the seat that Stephen Del Duca is seeking. And at the moment, Polly, which is the artificial intelligence that does the polling for advanced symbolics, they have Del Duca up by 2.2% over Michael Tobolo, who is the Conservative Cabinet Minister and the former sitting member in the last House. So we're looking at two really close races uh, in the province uh, that could go either way at this point. Uh, this may be a good time to remind everybody about something called the Quadra Factor. Does that ring any bells, John Michael? Uh, it does not. <laughs> this is one of these very rare times when being an old fart helps over you young kids. <laughs> Okay, the Quadra Factor goes back to 1984, and that was the year that John Turner led the federal Liberal Party to its worst finish ever, only 40 seats. And um, despite that, John Turner managed to be the only Liberal elected west of Manitoba, he, and the only one in British Columbia. Uh, he was running in Vancouver Quadra, and he won the seat because I think people in Vancouver sort of wanted to say, you know, we're going to punish the liberals across the rest of the party, across the rest of the country. But for you, we appreciate the effort you've made as a guy who decided to run in Western Canada and who wanted to try to plant the liberal flag in Vancouver. So we're going to let you win that seat. And, you know, the quadra factor is where one guy seems to, for whatever reason, uh, fly in the face of a trend that's happening everywhere else. At the moment, the progressive conservatives are looking pretty good all across the 905 and in York region. And yet, Del Duca's up by 2.2 points in Vaughan Woodbridge. So there may be some quadra factor happening there. And maybe they remember him as their former sitting member back before Tobolo won. So anyway, that's your little story. And now everybody knows what the quadra factor is. We need new solutions to old problems. And that's exactly what the Ontario Greens are putting forward. Well, there's Mike Schreiner, and let's do another word with uh, the Green Party leader who was talking about housing today, still campaigning virtually because of testing positive for COVID, of course, uh, discussing housing with a new idea. We've all heard of NIMBY, as in not in my backyard. This one's YIMBY. Tell us what that's about. You know, uh, I'm always happy when the language and terminology of, of housing policy dorks makes its way into wider circulation. And, uh, you know, this has been a, a word that has been uh, out there more and more lately, but I, I feel like you would be a totally normal, well-balanced human if you didn't know what YIMBY means. Um, and so this is the idea of, uh, you know, saying yes in my backyard, you know, uh, fighting the, let's call it political forces of uh, opposition to new housing uh, by, uh, you know, 
advocating for new forms of building and just new housing in general. Um, specifically, the Greens are advocating for a change in provincial policy. We've talked about some of this stuff before. Uh, they want to, you know, expand zoning to allow fourplexes, triplexes, uh, duplexes, townhouses in all uh, residential neighborhoods uh, in the province. Uh, they want to uh, sort of preemptively allow uh, mid-rise developments along transit corridors, uh, launch what they call a, you know, a prov province-wide yes-in-my-backyard initiative. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting that they are really like adopting that yimby label because like i said i mean i i do think housing dorks <laughs> are are having a bit of a moment and it's it's interesting to see you know a, a substantial provincial political party um a, a adopt that language you know it's almost uh, you know well, I guess at the beginning of the campaign, Stephen Del Duca did also wish us all a, a, a happy May the 4th for Star Wars Day. So it's, it sort of rings the same bell in my head in the same way. Now, can I confirm you are a housing dork? Uh, yes, very much. <laughs> okay, just wanted to get that on the record. Two quick things before we leave, and that is someone by the name of Greg Samuel tweeted earlier, thanks very much for the podcast on Ontario elections. You've been there for us year in and year out. We love hearing that. And I just wanted to confirm that Greg Samuel is not related to you, John Michael. He's not related to me. Uh, no, I don't believe uh, this person is, is any kind of a sibling or cousin or aunt or uncle. <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, we can take him at his word there. And last thing before we go, if you were not aware, TVO has a new show called The Thread, hosted by our pal Nam Kiwanuka. They're hosting a live Zoom event tomorrow, 3.45 p.m. Eastern Time, on the topic of what keeps people from the polls on Election Day. And if you'd like to join that, you can find more information on their Instagram account. It is at TVO The Thread. Once again, on Instagram, at TVO The Thread, 3.45 p.m. tomorrow. And that is the On Poly Podcast for Day 21. A reminder, we're here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign, right through to Election Day, June the 2nd. JMM, we'll see you on the hustings. See you tomorrow, Steve.